1: Before it was history, it was news. It
0: appears as though something has
2: happened in the
3: motor. I said, those are shots.
2: Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle.
3: I shall resign the presidency, effective at noon tomorrow.
1: I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose. To keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history,
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know, I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
3: Well, here
4: it comes, ladies and gentlemen. And what a great size it is. A thrilling one is coming down out of the sky,
5: pointed directly towards us and towards the mooring man. He was an announcer. And that was an important distinction to newspaper people who really didn't consider almost anybody in broadcast to be journalists.
2: The smoke the flames now, and the famous rising to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass of oh, the humanity.
6: I'm Brian Williams. The Hindenburg was to the sky what the Titanic was to the sea. Majestic, the largest of its kind. And both ended up suffering the same fate. The end came for the Hindenburg in spectacular fashion, a massive explosion while landing in Lakehurst, New Jersey on the 6th of May, 1937. The catastrophe took the lives of 35 people on board. It ended any notion of commercial travel by airship. And that day is remembered mostly for how the story was told in the moment by a young radio announcer named Herbert Morrison, who unknowingly on that day laid the groundwork for much of modern broadcast journalism. Broadcast historian, Dr. Michael Beale explains why.
5: Generally, most of the news on radio at that time was special event coverage, live coverage of news events the idea of a hourly newscast had not yet come to pass, and that many of the newscasts were really more commentaries. You had uh, people starting with H.V. Colton born. We've become so immersed in war. We've lived the war so completely, so intensely, that this transition
4: from one moment to the next into peace seems
5: almost Impossible to realize. Who was a newspaper editor, and he would come on and he would speak off the cuff for 15 minutes or 30 minutes. This is back in the early 1920s. In 1930, Lowell Thomas, who was a world-renowned lecturer, he started doing
3: uh, broadcasts. America for 300 years has been the land of promise for the rest of the world, the land of new frontiers. He had a team of
5: people that would be able to get information for him. They could call anybody and say, Hello, we're calling from Lowell Thomas's office in New York. And all the doors would suddenly be open to them that would not be open to Joe Schmo working at some newspaper or even at some wire service. They had to be careful not to use things right out of the newspaper because even though a lot of radio stations were owned by newspapers, this was still something that the newspapers were not really happy about, this competition. So they would always try to plant false stories that maybe Lowell Thomas would be caught up with, but still the main thrust of what, especially networks uh, wanted to have on the air, were special coverage of live events. And that was one thing that the broadcasters could do that newspapers could not. And newspapers could come out with an extra, but it would still take some time. Radio would already have covered the event. How do you do, everyone? We're
4: greeting you now from the Naval Air Base at Lakehurst, New Jersey, from which point we're going to bring you a description of the landing of the mammoth airship Hindenburg which was due here in in America this morning at dawn, completing the first transatlantic crossing of the 1937
6: season. A staff announcer at Chicago radio station WLS and a trained pilot, Herb Morrison had established friendly contacts with American Airlines back in 1937. Coincidentally, American was the only airline that provided connecting flights from the Hindenburgs Landing Ground in Lakehurst, New Jersey. So for publicity reasons, the airline agreed to transport Morrison to New Jersey to cover the Hindenburgs' debut flight of the 1937 season, along with his sound engineer, Charlie Nielsen, and nearly 100 pounds of recording equipment, no small undertaking at the time. In this very rare recording, Herb Morrison describes the circumstances leading up to his historic broadcast.
3: Through the years, many people believe that it just happened that I was there by more or less uh, an accident. But let me assure you, it was a carefully planned coverage of the arrival of the Hindenburg on its first anniversary flight from Germany to the United States. The airship had uh, made many successful and enjoyable flights across the Atlantic in 1936. As the time approached for the flight to Lakehurst, I thought this trip would be wonderful if I could bring back a description of the landing and interviews with some of the Chicago passengers on board. For some years, in fact, uh, from the time I started broadcasting in 1930, I'd been wanting to advance an idea that special events like this Hindenburg flight could be covered by use of electrical transcription equipment that is, make a record of the event at the scene, make interviews and so forth, then take the record back to the station for broadcasting. Commander Charles Rosendahl, who is now Admiral Rosendahl, assured me that uh, we would receive full cooperation for a broadcast. My next problem was getting permission from WLS to take recording equipment and one of the station engineers with me to Lakehurst. At first the idea was frowned on, but later approved, and I was assigned the most capable and loyal engineer, Charles Nielsen. Charlie and I worked out the details. Now, this was long before the days of light equipment and tape recorders such as we have today. In
5: 1934, the Presto company developed the lacquer-coated aluminum recording disc. And it was when that was invented and developed that broadcast quality recordings could be made. That would be almost as good as live broadcasting, which was laughingly called a portable. (laughs) These were, it was two gigantic separate pieces, a very heavy recording machine. Each of those cases were something in the neighborhood of 40 pounds or more. It had to have like a 15 pound turntable get a consistency of the rotational speed. The recording discs were 16 inches in diameter. Now you think of a regular LP, those are 12 inches diameter, but the 12 inch discs would only last about seven or eight minutes per side, whereas a 16 inch disc would last 15 minutes per side. So if he wanted to be able to continuously record for that length of time, That's why they had to use the larger 16-inch disc.
6: Built by Germany's Zeppelin manufacturing company, the Hindenburg was the largest aircraft of any kind ever to fly and the most elegant airship of its era. On board, there were staterooms and lounges, an observation deck and a formal restaurant. And while it's hard to believe today, it also displayed a giant Nazi swastika visible in the skies wherever it traveled across our country. All the more remarkable considering we'd be at war with the Nazis a few short years later.
4: Charlie Nielsen, one of our WLS engineers and sheriff aside working the controls. We both flew down from Chicago yesterday afternoon aboard one of the giant new 21 passenger flagships of American Airlines. It took us only three hours, 55 minutes to fly nonstop from Chicago to New York. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines
5: waiting to take the Lakers with our equipment. When we were ready to go, he was an announcer. He was not a journalist, and that was an important distinction to newspaper people, who really didn't consider almost anybody in broadcast to be journalists. You know, for example, they were not allowed to be part of some of the journalist organizations, and they had to start their own journalists, they're, they're broadcast journalist organizations. He wanted to go and interview celebrities that had disembarked from the airship, much like newsreels would cover the landings of cruise ships. He was also interested in the aviation industry, and he was working with American Airlines, possibly create a program that American Airlines might sponsor.
4: And as we came in for a landing on the runway of the field here at Lakehurst, we could easily see that a great event was about to take place. Last-minute preparations were being made to handle the landing of this great ship. which just one year ago today, May 6th, that the Hindenburg made its first regular passenger flight to America, the flight that inaugurated the first air service across the Atlantic. So this occasion is doubly significant. It is the first anniversary of the inauguration of the service and marks the first flight of this year. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany, yeah, uh, Tuesday evening rather, at 7.30 their time. And for better than two and a half days, they've been speeding through the skies over miles and miles
7: of water here to America. I I was out on a little patio right outside uh, this office they had given us. And I started talking and saying, Well, here it comes, ladies
4: and gentlemen. And what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and towards the mooring mass. The mighty diesel motors just roared, their propellers sliding into the air and throwing it back into a gale like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors
5: behind it. He was standing outside a hangar that was. Uh, I think maybe, uh, you know, something like two or three hundred yards away, you know, from the mooring mast. Charlie Nielsen was right inside the hangar. So the recording machine was inside, and Herb Morrison was just outside, right alongside of the building.
4: Our field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the post and spot, and orders are being passed along, and last-minute preparations are being completed for well, the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The sh- ship is no doubt busting We're with activities floor, we can see. Okay. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows, looking down We're the field ahead the of the them, mooring, getting their glimpse of the mooring mast. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship and uh, it's been taken a hold up down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flames! The that is falling it's crazy!
2: Watch it! It's coming away! Get out the way! Get this Charlie! Get this Charlie! It's crazy and it's crazy! It's rising terrible. Oh my, get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the mooring mast. and all the folks agree that it, this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, so so it's, it's 20, oh, four or 500 feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen, the smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. Oh, the humanity and all the birds screaming around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. whose friends are out there. It's I uh, oh. I I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, just play like that massive smoking wreckage, and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and scream. Lady, I I'm sorry. <laughs>
7: There was a lot of people, you know how they do when around a broadcast and the announcer's talking and they, they want to hear what he's saying. So a lot of them came up and there was an elderly lady and here's something a lot of people don't know. She was standing beside the side of me and she's about eight, I said, be 75 and eight or something, like that, and she's waiting, I'm sure, for her husband. And she's standing on the left of me and I was holding my microphone on the left hand in the broadcast. And I had a hat that came, kind of, and as it kind of tilted over, but I saw her start to faint. So I switched my hands, really, and I caught her around the waist. And she's dead fainted right in my arms. See? And I, I said, uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry, lady. And I kept on describing this. I,
2: I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. <laughs> Charlie, that's terrible. <laughs> I. Can... Right, listen, folks, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the poison. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. They weren't in any physical danger.
5: They were far enough away, so, and they didn't have to run. And that was the thing. that There were a lot of people running towards them from, the, you know, from there. And what he's saying, oh, my, get out of the way, please, he was, he was telling people that was around him, get out of the way, let these people that are, uh, you know, that are running towards them, let them through. But that was something that, I guess, instinct of being a broadcaster. And as I said, he was an announcer, but an announcer describes events. And so he was continuing to broadcast, describing the event, not as a journalist, but as a broadcaster, as an announcer, as somebody who was giving your color to what was happening uh, in front of him. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again.
4: I raced down to the burning ship, and just as I walked up through the ship over, climbed over the circuit line, I met a man coming out, a dazed, dazed, he couldn't find his way, I grabbed a hold of him, it's Philip Mangone, Philip Mangone, A-N-G-O-N-E, of New York. Philip Mangone, he's burned terribly in the hands, and he's burned terribly in the face, his eyebrows, and all his hair is burned off, but he's walking and talking, plainly and distinctly, and he told me he jumped, he jumped, with other passengers.
7: They started jumping and, but you know, this fact that uh, it it exploded and I said, it's burst into flames. And from the time I said it's burst into flames, it was burned in 34 seconds.
5: After he realized that he had made it seem worse than it was, he wanted to prove that there were people that survived. He ran down to the wreckage and he discovered three or four people wandering around that had been survivors. He comes back to Charlie and says that, they, you know, I, I'm sorry if I made it seem worse than it actually was. Then he went back down again and brought back several people to interview. And that's what the rest of the half hour or so of the recording is mostly interviews with uh, four or five people, some of whom spoke German, and he had to have a uh, an interpreter interpreted for him, for the broadcast. So if you listen to the whole recording of it, you hear that that's what he was doing for really most of the rest of the recording to uh, uh, to reassure people that it was a survivable accident.
4: And now friends, I want to tell you, I'm back here. I want to tell you that the wreckage is still flaming out there, but I have some very good news for you. Uh, I just came from the front of the building where they have set up an emergency station and they claim that between 25 and 30, that is the estimate between 25 and 30, are saved out of the wreckage.
5: By that time, NBC had a remote mobile unit there at Lakehurst and was starting to do several live broadcasts. They did something like four different broadcasts that evening and two the following morning. And they were able to microwave it back to New York without having to have telephone lines. So he went to that mobile unit and identified himself. I'm from uh, the, the Chicago NBC Blue affiliate and I was an eyewitness to it. And he probably also told them, I have a recording of the, uh, you know, what? Transpired at the time of the explosion. And in either event, whether he told them about the recording or not, they didn't consider him a journalist worthy of their attention and they just shooed him away. He and Charlie gathered up the four discs and remember, these are 16-inch discs and so they are rather large. And that Apparently, there were some German Bund members around in Lakehurst, and they would not have appreciated this recording getting out. So they had to hide the recordings under their overcoats. And they, being involved with American Airlines, were able to get on an American Airlines flight and fly them back to Chicago. So he went back to WLS, and they aired it the following morning.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, in place of the program originally scheduled for this period, we present now one of the most unique broadcasts we have ever presented. An actual eyewitness description of the disaster at Lakehurst, New Jersey, last night. The destruction of the giant airship Hindenburg. In keeping with the policy, the last the thing company that Herb Morrison
5: would have wanted to do would be to kill off this whole industry of transatlantic lighter-than-airship travel,
6: which essentially it did. We will continue our story in a moment.
0: There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox Britbox
6: Global politics played a role in the composition of the airship itself. Hitler was already in power, so when the U.S. refused to export helium for use by Germany in the 1930s, the Zeppelin company redesigned the Hindenburg to be filled with hydrogen, a lighter gas that allowed it to carry more weight, which meant more passenger seating. Hydrogen was also infinitely more flammable. After 10 successful transatlantic voyages in 1936, such concerns were put to rest, or so the Germans thought. And as a practical matter, the U.S. entry into World War II would have ended any German flights to this country. But the history of the Hindenburg was sealed in time when Morrison's recording transformed news broadcasts in all the years to come because of his moving and urgent and humane description of what he saw. It's the perfect
5: expression. It just came to him. and It just was off the top of his head. All the humanity and all the passengers feeding around it. All the humanity and all the passengers was what the phrase actually is. That he is talking about, you know, instead of just saying all the passengers, he was saying, all the humanity and all the passengers. It was just the perfect thing for somebody to say. And it does resonate all these years. It shows that a recording of a news event can be as good, if not more, important than a live coverage of a news event.
6: For all of that, the networks remained so suspicious of airing recordings in lieu of live broadcast news that it took another two years before NBC would agree to air another recording for broadcast. This time it was on September 3rd, 1939, when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war with Germany.
4: This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin
5: And that speech, which occurred about four or five in the morning New York time, NBC gave permission to itself to rebroadcast it every hour on the hour till noon so that people in all the different time zones would be able to hear that. But that was the next time over two years later before they allowed a recording on the air.
6: But the war sped up the process as Americans at home hungered for any news from fields of battle, recorded or not.
3: We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun.
8: This marked the first time that anybody in the world was receiving reports in real time. Michael Friedman
6: was the general manager of CBS radio networks.
8: People listened to the radio religiously because everybody had a vested interest in every word that was coming out of the radio, particularly with these news broadcasts. You had a son, a husband, a nephew, a daughter, an uncle, a father who was in the war. And the reporters became heroes insofar as people were receiving the first word of battles from them.
6: On this season of We Interrupt This Broadcast, we examine the decisive moment of a critical evolution for broadcast journalism that started with D-Day. Broadcasters reported and recorded the invasion that changed the course of history.
2: Into the clouds before
4: they burst. They're still going up. And now the plane
5: has probably gone
3: beyond. This is Charles Collingwood. We are on the beach today on D Day. We can see the smoke and results of our own shelling place even smells like an invasion. It has a curious odor, which uh, we always associate with modern war. It's the smell
6: of oil and high explosive and burning things. We'll also examine the role broadcasters have played in moments of national crisis and the balance struck between professional obligations and personal emotions.
3: From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago.
9: I thought he was going to lose it, but he didn't. When he put those glasses down and choked up, I figured, uh uh-oh, Where's Severide? i got to get somebody in there right away.
6: Don Hewitt was then the producer of the CBS Evening News. Because I didn't know whether Walter was going to recover from it, but
9: pro that he is, he did. But I think that moment, all of America shared that. They all felt what he felt. They felt the same despair, the same, my God, what do we do now? And I think there was probably a tear... In 100 million eyes, as there was in Waller's. I did have some trouble
3: getting the words out. But we in the news and television news, particularly, but all the news people, operate very much like emergency personnel, fire,
1: police, hospitals. Uh, Our adrenaline flows faster. We've got a job to do.
3: We're doing the job and we're concentrating on that rather than the emotional impact.
6: Our season culminates with perhaps the single most challenging event to report on in the modern broadcast era.
9: Good Lord, there are no words. When the second building went down, we all just needed a moment to look at it and think about it. And you know, Nothing I could say was going to be as powerful as what they saw.
6: Aaron Brown was the primetime anchor for CNN
9: nothing i could add was going to make people feel better or frankly worse what viewers need is a moment to feel it what went on in the 11th was not all of the head it was of the soul and the heart it was a country that we all knew in those moments was going to be changed and to take five seconds or ten seconds to just let people feel it seemed like the right thing to do
8: i think Everybody, you know, who went down to that scene, down there, at least as they got close up, knowing that, you know, their own life was in peril.
6: John Montone, a veteran reporter for the news radio station WINS in New York.
8: That something could happen. We didn't know what else was going to go on, if there were bombs anywhere, you know, if they were going to attack, uh, if people were going to come out with automatic weapons. You know, we we just had, we really had no idea. But I think when you start to work and, you know, when you do what we do, sometimes you just forget about all of that. And, you know, you're just so focused on telling the story and using your powers of Observation and in your your ability to explain to people who are not there what is going on.
9: The role of anchor in that moment is not a baseball play-by-play announcer. In a moment like that, you know there are things that are going to be wrong. You know you're going to report things that turn out not to be right. That's true in any breaking news situation. I just want to make sure we minimize that.
6: We Interrupt This Broadcast examines how broadcast journalism both reflected and shaped the American experience by revisiting those pivotal events that interrupted our lives and bound us together, even at moments of national tragedy, especially at moments of national tragedy.
2: It's a terrific drag, ladies and gentlemen, the smoke is slave now, and the famous driving to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all
6: the fans feeding garage. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day,
1: broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air, it's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident, or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, The Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.